0: Hey folks, I've got another short show for you this Monday, while I keep working on what I'm beginning to think might be the last Iran show ever, but definitely don't quote me on that, you guys know. And I'm going to try something a little bit new this week. I usually come at you with an entire essay, with all of its points worked out, and at least half of these shorties have been essays I wrote a long while ago, and had an opportunity to improve. This week is going to be different. So the genesis for this little experiment came out of two books I read while I was in Mexico City and on the way home for a reunion in June. Those books were Neil Sheehan's A Bright Shining Lie, which is about an American colonel who pretty much saw and tried to make known what was wrong with the war in Vietnam from the very beginning of the 1960s. And the second was Jill Lepore's The Whites of Their Eyes, which is a book about the rise of the Tea Party and Americans' tendency to misuse history across the political spectrum. As I was reading those books and since, I've kept getting the feeling that there's something that connects them both with a lot of what I've talked about here in terms of our collective historical ignorance. Letting you in on a little secret about the way my brain works, I read and I read and I read when I've got a paper or one of these essays or whatever, and slowly, slowly, that feeling of having something on the tick of your tongue, it builds up. And once I've hit a critical mass of books and thought and usually a lot of thrown away sheets of paper, there's this moment of revelation. And the idea that was playing around at the edge of my consciousness all of a sudden becomes clear, and I can write whatever I'm writing. That has not happened yet with this thing. And the reason it hasn't happened, I'm guessing, is that what it is is a kind of grand, unified theory of American screw-ups, and thus policy, since the Second World War. Ever since I kind of maybe decided back in the spring that Vietnam would be the next thing I did if I didn't go to school, and I correspondently started trucking through Michael Hare's dispatches and the Frenchman Bernard Falls books on the war in Indochina and Dien Bien Phu, and interestingly, since I discovered that one of Monsanto's first real mega contracts was producing Agent Orange for the US government during Vietnam, I've been seeing in my mind's eye a kind of golden thread tracing its way through every administration and every disastrous decision they've made since Truman. It's a big, important thread, and I think I've probably got a lot more reading to do before it becomes all of a sudden clear to me. But I've gotten to some cool intermediary thoughts, and they might, might be worth sharing with you. I guess you all get to decide if they were at the end of this thing, and through the magic of the internet, you can, and I hope you will, tell me if it was any good or not. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able yes, to... Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no reverb, brothers. The revolution will be live. So, the first of these ideas that's been bouncing around in my head comes from trying to find what exactly my common ground is with what Jill Lepore talked about in her book seeing as that's where this kind of feeling started coming from. And my side of things is what came out during the short show a couple of months ago about the U.S. educational system creating a standard framework with which we learn about history and how, when we encounter things that don't fit into it, like the subjects of my long shows, we tend to forget them. If you haven't heard that show, go back and listen to it, because it's definitely good, and this one is only maybe gonna be. On the poor side of things, she writes first of all that at some point in the mid century, maybe due to an increasing secularism in popular culture in America, American young people began putting a kind of religious fervor into their political activities. She quotes the historian Richard Hofstetter as saying at the time quote, This, I think, is a dangerous way of thinking, because when you try to get existential values out of politics, which has to do with wholly different things, I think you're heading for an increase in fanaticism. Unquote. I think that Hofstetter is right in that it's dangerous. Both the extremisms of the 20th century, Soviet communism and fascism, came out of existentialist politics. And I think further that he's right in that the best traditions of American politics have always been about grand compromises, bargains, not grand moral stands. And I think that you can see in our Congress today that we've gone the other way. The second thing that Lepore brings in, if only briefly, is the actual injection of religion into American politics starting just before and then under Reagan. That is that evangelical Protestants and large swathes of conservative and especially southern religious folks had kept themselves and their pastors out of politics because they felt it to be, correctly, a corrupting influence. Reagan, and more especially the cynical dudes who'd worked first under Nixon and who are continuing their work of destroying the country in the modern GOP today, turned that around and brought evangelicals into the GOP's big tent. Now you can think literally whatever you want about evangelical Christianity but I think the evidence that that had a deleterious effect on the polarization of conservative politics and on evangelical religion's integrity itself is that Donald J. Trump, a man who breaks with professed evangelical morality in every way possible except that he himself is not personally gay and has not personally had an abortion, was elected by huge numbers of evangelical Christians. I'm having a harder time fitting this exactly into the mental mitten that I'm knitting right now, but I'm convinced that it's important, even if only as another factor making our politics more about ideological purity and less about compromise. The other thing that struck me, which I'd never really thought about consciously because it was so much of a given, is that conservatives, and especially the GOP in the US, own bad history. And I've got own in quotation marks there. What I mean is that, while both Republicans and Democrats participated in all of the terrible stuff that I cover on this show, and literally no president is exempt, even the most straight history episodes, where I don't get into my long-winded moralizing, are called liberal or, by mad enough conservatives on the internet, total bullshit, or whatever other formulation. And I mean, like, why? It's a matter of fact what went down in Guatemala and what went down in Iran it shouldn't in the first place be BS to anybody until I get on my high horse and if we're defending historical figures really the blame gets shared all around but I can guarantee you that when I start on my episodes on Vietnam and we're going to spend a lot of time with members of the Johnson administration I'm going to get the same reaction even though Johnson's Great Society if it had worked out would have been an even bigger conservative bugbear than FDR's New Deal anyway so conservatives owning bad history that's like thing 3 or so And the last one is a theory about official forgetfulness or official mendacity that maybe has its roots in Hannah Arendt's essay, Lying in Politics, which is about the Pentagon Papers, but which I think, on my side, is a bit bigger of an idea in scope. And that idea or theory is that I'm starting to think that beginning in 1946 and increasing pretty much nonstop since then, that the policy of the executive, almost across the board, in terms of international relations and foreign policy, has been to lie, knowingly, to the public, and perversely, even to itself. I'm going to get into this point in depth, because it takes some explaining and some defending, and then I'm going to see if at the end of that, I can tie everything together and get myself halfway to that golden thread, that grand unified theory of US foreign policy since the Second World War. my thesis is basically that the US, on balance, began after the end of World War II to pursue a foreign policy that ran contrary to its founding documents, its long-standing tradition as an isolationist power, and to the international agreements like the UN Charter which it had signed. The reasons that every president since Truman pursued such a policy were complicated, often very well thought out, and again since Truman thought within the White House to be too complicated and too well thought out To be explained to the American people. Prior to Truman, and especially during active wars, the US president sometimes operated in secret. But by and large, administrations, when they were trying to do something overseas, they talked about it with the Congress and, usually, tried to sell it to the American people. There's a reason why we have so many of Wilson's speeches about the League of Nations and the 14 points, even though they were broadly unpopular because he wanted to sell them, and he trusted in the American public's intellectual ability to be sold on them. So, let's illustrate this thesis with an example. Vietnam. During the Second World War, the Japanese invaded and occupied the French colony of Indochina, and they collaborated with the Vichy French in holding it. During the war, the US partnered with a communist named Ho Chi Minh to launch a resistance against both of them. We sent advisors and trained, funded, and armed Ho's Viet Minh throughout the war. Ho eventually overthrew both the Japanese and the Vichy French, and shortly afterwards, he declared Vietnamese independence. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into it here because it's the subject for the next series of shows, but in order to secure French participation in our plans for reconstruction and political unity in Western Europe, the French demanded our help in resecuring their colony in Indochina. So, what happened is that we did, under Truman, and then much more so under Eisenhower. But at no point did either of them try to tell the public the whole story. They both thought, though, that the trade-off was the right one to make. That helping the French to do something that they thought was immoral, and in any case ran directly contrary to the U.S.'s professed anti-colonial values, was worth securing French participation in, and thus the security of, Western Europe against Soviet aggression. But it looked bad. And according to another book I'm reading, by John Lewis Gaddis, about security policy during the Cold War, those presidents didn't think the public would follow the argument. So when the French lost that war, with the US funding more than 80% of it by the end, those administrations also didn't explain to the public in much detail why it was that we had to support a dude named Diem and his regime in Saigon, or why we helped him to renege on the national elections in Vietnam. that were the centerpiece of the peace treaty that Ho Chi Minh signed with the French, because then they might have had to tell the public the whole story. So much so unsurprising in the modern world of executive secrecy, and this all sounds more or less, I guess, understandable, right? But then get this. Eisenhower leaves Kennedy with an ongoing financial commitment to the DM government in Saigon, in South Vietnam, and with some small number of US advisors on the ground helping them to build up their military. And this is public knowledge, without being publicly known, if that makes any sense. It's the same way that right now we have hundreds of advisors in Syria, and that's public knowledge without being publicly or widely known. And Ho Chi Minh, in the wake of the joint South Vietnamese-US failure to hold an election that they had all agreed to hold, started infiltrating that same Viet Minh down into South Vietnam, with the aim of toppling Diem and the South Vietnamese regime and uniting the country that he and his countrymen had been trying to free and unite, whether from the French, the Japanese, or the Chinese, for literally hundreds of years. Okay, so, the Kennedy administration, even as it ramped up military and economic aid to Diem and the South Vietnamese, was wondering where this growing, dirty little commitment exactly fit into their security policy, which was deterrence. From Gaddis's book, quote, One reason was a persistent lack of clarity as to who or what was being deterred. Impressed by Khrushchev's Wars of National Liberation speech, which is a speech that Khrushchev made about supporting little wars for national liberation, The Kennedy administration had at first located the roots of the Viet Cong insurgency in Moscow. By 1964, though, Beijing and not Moscow had come to be seen as the culprit." And they're having this debate in the White House over who really is controlling the insurgency, when it would have been clear to any of the then-OSS and later CIA men who had assisted Ho Chi Minh during the Second World War that there was no culprit, and there had never been any culprit except for Ho. And that it wasn't creeping communism they were fighting, but a Vietnamese desire to unite a country that had been colonized and divided for at least a 100 years at that point. And as Hannah Arendt points out in her essay on lying, all of this was public knowledge, and definitely knowledge in the White House, but not publicly known and definitely not officially acknowledged. If that sentence made any sense. From Arendt now, quote, That concealment, falsehood, and the role of the deliberate lie became the chief issues of the Pentagon Papers, rather than illusion, error, miscalculation, and the like, is mainly due to the strange fact that the mistaken decisions and lying statements consistently violated the astoundingly accurate factual reports of the intelligence community. The crucial point here is not merely that the policy of lying was hardly ever aimed at the enemy, but that it was destined chiefly, if not exclusively, for domestic consumption, for propaganda at home, and especially for the purpose of deceiving Congress, Now, Arendt thinks that this had to do with the Kennedy and Johnson administration's preoccupation with image, that the U.S. had to appear to be doing good, had to appear to be holding the line against communism, and that even within the government, that concern did away with truth and facts. I'll get deep, deep into that argument when we get to Vietnam in earnest, but whatever the case, it held that they, and later Nixon, consistently told the public, and sometimes even Congress, the opposite of what they knew to be happening on the ground. When the Johnson administration became aware in the mid-1960s that everything they'd been doing so far in Vietnam had been totally ineffective, and that war expenditures would balloon from hundreds of millions to tens of billions of dollars a year, they hid those estimates from the public and the Congress, because they knew that those estimates would jeopardize domestic expenditures for the great society and because they knew that the war, as it was then being fought, was unjustifiable according to any long-standing American principles. So they just didn't tell anybody about it. Likewise, once Johnson announced after the Tet Offensive in 1968 that he would not seek nor would he accept his party's nomination for president, Nixon ran on, basically, a secret plan to end the war. Now, you might argue that lying on the campaign trail is different from lying in government, and you might be right, But not only did that secret plan not exist during the campaign, it didn't exist as Nixon governed and continued to prosecute the war. I could try to trace this trend through every bit of the last 60 years, but that would be a five hour long essay, and this is already maybe like a little bit too long, so let's go with just two more old examples and one recent. On this podcast, we've discussed both Iran and Guatemala, and the two coups that Eisenhower authorized on the Dulles Brothers' insistence in 1953 and 1954. Both of those operations ran contrary to the U.S.'s stated values of supporting other countries' democracies and avowed conduct in the world. So Eisenhower never acknowledged, nor tried to sell to the public, even in general, a policy of covert intervention in other nations' internal politics. So when both of those coups eventually went south, Guatemala pretty much immediately in Iran in 1979, it was impossible to own up to or to give the full accounting of what had happened that would have gone a long way, especially in Iran, towards rectifying the problem. In the first place, because it would have been inconvenient and embarrassing to admit that we had destroyed those countries before the world and the American public. And because before all that information got declassified, there were few enough people even in our own government who knew about what had happened. And if you wanna get into a more modern and extreme example of lying and ignorance as policy and how it goes wrong, look no further than the Iraq war. The one thing you can say for Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson in Vietnam is that their support for Diem and the South Vietnamese regime and the war made sense in terms of their stated foreign policy objectives on at least one level. They were containing communism. And Ho Chi Minh, even though he wasn't being controlled by Moscow or Beijing, was at least a communist. Not so in 2003. The Bush administration deliberately propagandized the public in order to prosecute a war which had, by any measure, nothing at all to do with its own war on terror. Saddam Hussein was a bad dude. I am not defending Saddam Hussein. And he terrorized his own people. But in terms of the terror dynamics of the Middle East, Iraq pre-2003 was at least stable. And the only result of our invasion has been an incredible increase in terrorism worldwide. Not only that, but if anybody had cracked a history book, or read one or two articles about the Iran-Iraq war, or had consulted, like, literally one Arab or one Iranian, they'd have realized that the number one effect of destroying Iraq would have been to create that instability and increase terrorism that I just mentioned, and that it would have increased by a huge margin the power of our avowed enemy in the region, Iran, which is exactly what has happened after the war. Now you guys know I've got my own feelings about Iran and that maybe it's not such a bad thing that they're becoming a more prominent power in the Middle East, but that much was right there. Right there, man. So that's idea four or so, lying in government. In brief, right? But so how do I link up all these ideas I've got floating around in my head together and bring this show to some hopefully satisfying conclusion? And just to recap for you guys' benefit, and maybe mine, we've got one, my thoughts on American historical forgetfulness. And then we've got two Jill Lepore's thoughts, from her book The Whites of Their Eyes, on both liberals and conservatives injecting existential values into their politics, and on religious conservatives entering the political arena in the 1970s and 1980s. Then we've got the strange way that the modern GOP owns what I'd call bad history, the official narrative where the US almost never or never did anything wrong overseas, and the way in which we ignore everything that happens in my long shows. And then finally, we've got lying as government policy and the official and public ignorance that results from it, which is the thing I just got done with. So, as a halfway conclusion, how about this? The polarization and fanaticism that Lapore and Richard Hofstetter were talking about grew up during the Vietnam War, and the GOP and Nixon's so-called silent majority became pro-war, even though our commitment in Vietnam grew up under Democratic presidents, and was anything but conservative from a classic American point of view. And that commitment to whatever conflict was ongoing and to quote-unquote the troops turned into an essential part of the conservative package that became the subject of an almost religious feeling on the right under Reagan. So it is that today, criticism of US action abroad has become a de facto leftist position, even if the people you're criticizing were themselves leftist, E.g., when I get to Johnson and Kennedy, I'll still take flack from the right because implicitly I'm criticizing the US itself. Now, there's much more to say here and more connections to make. It's a fact that while conservatives might object more when I or anybody tries to correct the official US narrative, liberal politicians subscribe to it just as much. And while Bush lied us into the Iraq war, Barack Obama wasn't exactly trying to sell his drone policy to the public night after night in primetime either, but Unfortunately, that's about as far as I've gotten thinking about all this. Don't get me wrong, I think everything I've said so far is correct, and if you see something egregious in my reasoning, I want you to tell me about it. And through the magic of the internet, again, you can, and I really, really legitimately want you to. I'm more concerned with being right than about winning arguments. Anyway, as you heard in my short show about norms and Mitch McConnell, I think between this Congress and this administration, that we've hit pretty much the absolute apotheosis to date of official ignorance and official policies of public lying, and I can't imagine that it's going to get better from here. That might be an unsatisfactory end to a Monday show, but at the very least I can tell you that everything interesting I got into today, from the linkage between patriotism and war, the security policies of every administration from Truman on during the Cold War, Hannah Arendt's on lying in politics, and Vietnam, especially Vietnam are going to get more thorough and more cleanly thought-out treatments over this next year. I hate to leave you in the lurch, but well, I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.